Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to CIRA. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, my name is Michael Grigoletto and it's my great privilege to lead the external relations team at CIRA and to welcome you all here this morning. Um, it's Macular Degeneration Awareness Week. So while I won't say that's cause for celebration, thank you for coming out and supporting that and being with us this morning. Uh, we're gathered this morning on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. Before we get started, I'll run through some housekeeping and give you a brief introduction to the Centre for Eye Research Australia. We have a very full event schedule at CIRA, um, culminating in the annual Gerard Crock Lecture, which will be on the 22nd of November. Naturally, you will be getting invitations to these, um, but please keep an eye out for those. And if you don't happen to receive an invitation, please get in touch with us because we, we want to make sure that we reach out to our community in that. So a few words on CIRA. Many of you um, will know this, but for those that are new to CIRA, um, CIRA was established in 1996 and grew out of the University of Melbourne's Department of Ophthalmology. Over the last couple of decades, we've grown to become Australia's leading eye research institute, and we're recognised as being one of the top four in the world. We're truly a world-class centre of integrated vision research, translation and innovation, where clinicians, patients, researchers and industry come together to develop treatments and technologies that will transform patient lives. Now, none of the work that we do would be possible without the tremendous generosity of our donors. Many of you in this room are donors. Um, however you choose to support CIRA, whether it's responding to our um, annual tax appeal or Christmas appeal or other appeals that come through, um, and please keep an eye out for the tax appeal, that's out now, um, or whether it's making provision for CIRA in your wills and bequest giving is something that we are seeing uh, a lot more of at CIRA. However you choose to support CIRA, um, we'd like to thank you for that. If there are ways that we can uh, acknowledge you better, take care of you better, give you more information about CIRA, please don't hesitate to, to reach out. We have the lovely Maggie and Elaine and, and myself um, who are only too delighted to hear from our donors and our community about what we can do to take better care of you. And again, thank you. It's now my great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Robin Geimer. So Robin Geimer is a professor of ophthalmology at the University of Melbourne and deputy director of the Centre for Eye Research Australia. She's also a senior retinal specialist at the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital. Robin is a clinician scientist who leads a team of 20 researchers, you'll meet some today, primarily investigating age-related macular degeneration. She has investigated genetic and environmental risk factors for AMD, predictors of response to treatments for late-stage AMD, as well as being a principal investigator in many industry-sponsored trials. Professor Geimer is on several advisory boards, is the clinical program leader and on the scientific leadership team of Bionic Vision Australia, and is part of the MACTEL Consortium and Beckman AMD initiative in the United States. She's currently investigating new strategies for treating early stage disease with a nanosecond laser and is working to identify normal, novel imaging and functional biomarkers to allow the efficacy of interventions to be determined. She's a member of the Macular Society and a founding fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. Professor Geimer was awarded the NHMRC's 2016 Elizabeth Blackburn Fellowship for the top ranked female research fellowship in clinical medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Robin Geimer.
Thanks, Michael. Um, I'd like to add my welcome to you all. It's like old school week, really, seeing you all here again. So this year we have four young researchers that work with me on a day-to-day -day basis to present to you. Um, I thought I would mix it up a little bit today and hopefully give you some new information, recognising that many of you have come for many years. But for those of you who have not come before, I think I should teach you one thing so that at least you can leave if they're hopeless. You can leave with just one, one thing, which is just to understand their talks a little more if we're all on the same page about the, wor the words we use around AMD. So the way I like to think about it is there are early stages of the disease and late stages of the disease, and that late uh, disease has two forms. One is what's called dry and one is what's called wet. And wet is the bleeding and the dry is where there's just this slow death of cells. And anything before that is really neither wet nor dry. It's, uh, it's the earliest stage of the disease. And if you like to think of it like a stroke, it's like having high blood pressure as a risk factor and you can have strokes where you bleed or strokes where you um, have death of cells. So very similar if you have in your mind, there's still the same problem with vision, but you get there by two different mechanisms. So I think that's just helpful if you can remember that as, as you hear the talks. So our first speaker is uh, Kira Young, and uh, we have restarted our bionic eye work um, at CIRA, having a little sojourn there for a few a year or so. So I thought it would be useful just to hear where we are with the bionic eye project. Not that I'm hopeful that it will be useful for AMD, because I'm hopeful that we will prevent people getting to the point where they will need the sort of vision that at the moment is um, offered by these bionic implants. But just one, because it's very topical, and two, there is the potential that as that research progresses, it may get to a point where it can help people with, with only losing central vision. But at the moment, it's really designed for people who really have the potential to lose all their vision. So I think we'll um, welcome Kira first. Thanks very much. So we just need to... Yeah, and you are... Oh, I should have worn that. You are... Which one are you? Um, I am... Okay, so good morning everyone. As Robin mentioned, my name's Kira and I'm a team member on uh, the Bionic Eye Project. So my presentation this morning will just touch on what the Bionic Eye is and give you an overview of what Sierra has been involved with since the first Bionic Eye Project that started in 2012. So the Bionic Eye. That name to me, like uh, in my personal opinion, is quite a general term and it's actually quite futuristic. When I think bionics, I think Terminator and robots. And I had my family, when I became a part of the team, they asked me questions like, oh, does it include X-ray vision and laser beams? So just to give you some background, my family are sci-fi and comic book nerds, so they might have a slightly unrealistic expectations and wild imaginations, but they are questions nonetheless because we also get questions from patients such as, does a bionic eye replace your whole eye, uh, to stories of specific accidents and diseases that they have and can the bionic eye help them? Well, I can tell you that we're not quite at the stage of x-ray vision and we don't have ethical approval for lasers, but our, research, um, our researchers are working very hard to develop a device that will hopefully one day be commercialised and aid patients who have lost their sight. So the bionic eyes that are being developed are what we call a visual prosthesis. 
They use light or electrical energy to stimulate an area of the visual pathway that runs from the back of the brain right up to the eye. And the location of the bionic eye can vary between research groups and be implanted in several locations along this pathway. Today, I'm just going to focus on the retina because that's where our bionic eye is implanted and where our research is focused. So I do have an image here of the layers of the back of the eye. So if I can get you to imagine a three-layered cake and turn it vertically, so they're all standing upright. The first layer is the retina. And as most of you might know, this is the part of the eye that receives information about what we see and turns it from light information to electrical signals that the brain can interpret. The second layer is the choroid and that provides nutrients to the retina. And the third layer is a white outside layer called um, the sclera. Now the bionic eye can be placed in one of these, uh, amongst these three layers. Uh, the first area is the epiretinal region, and that just means in front or on top of the retina, so that first layer. The subretinal region, which is behind the retina, or the suprachoroidal space, which is the space behind the choroid, and that's where our bionic eye is implanted. So the aim of the, the bionic eye is placed in one of these three areas is to restore vision to people who have gone blind from retinal degenerative diseases. And at this stage, our research focuses on a condition called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. So RP is a condition, and it's uh, well, a retinal disease, and it's quite devastating where the photoreceptors within the retina die. The characteristic signs are dark or black pigmented spots around the periphery of the retina, and it often affects a patient quite early in life, um, reducing their peripheral vision first, um, giving a sense of tunnel vision, and it can also cause light sensitivity. It then progresses to their central vision with most patients being diagnosed as legally or completely blind by the time they reach their late 20s or early 30s. It's a very rare condition with one in 3,000 to one in 5,000 being diagnosed and it can be inherited or spontaneously diagnosed with no family history. RP can also accompany other syndromes like Usher syndrome and currently there's no treatment or cure for this disease. So I'm just going to move on now to how the bionic eye actually works. So as well as the implant in the retina, there are other or well, a few more components that um, all work together to process an image. You first have a little video camera that's placed on the side of a pair of glasses that the patient wears, and this camera captures the image that the patient is looking at. The data from the camera is sent to an external processing unit that the patient carries or, or wears and then sends this information to a stimulator. Now the location of this stimulator does vary between groups and with our group it's actually located under the skin on the side of the head behind the ear and once this stimulator receives the information from the processing unit it sends signals to the implant in the eye which uh, activates the surviving cells of the retina. This retinal uh, stimulation sends signals down the visual pathway to the back of the brain where the visual cortex is, which interprets the signals as phosphine vision. Now, people with bionic eyes do not regain their normal vision that they had when they were younger. Um, but in fact, an artificial uh, vision, which researchers call phosphine vision. And the best way for me to describe this to you if is if you imagine that you're in a straight white corridor with a black box somewhere in your pathway. If you now turn the lights off so it's pitch black, but then light up where the box was with a series of lights, this will grossly give you an idea of what we hope participants will see. 
Now, these lights are more grayscale pixelation and they're not lit up like Christmas lights and will not give information about colour or detail, but we're hoping it will give you or participants an idea that there's at least an object in your pathway. And in order to use this phosphine vision, participants need to go in, undergo intensive training with the research team to learn how to interpret this new information that they're receiving. So to move on to the first Bonakai trial that was done here in Melbourne, it's called the 24-channel percutaneous plug study. And this was a proof of concept prototype trial to determine the safety and feasibility of our surgical techniques determine if the device was stable, and determine if we could even produce a phosphine, and if we could, could the participants with a severely damaged retina see it and use it. As the name suggests, the retinal implant was a two-by-one silicon plate with 24 electrodes, and this implant was connected to a percutaneous plug that was exposed to the participant's skin just slightly behind their ear. This plug connected patients to a computer in the labs. The study recruited three participants who all had RP and bare light perception only. It went for about two and a half years and results showed that surgical, surgical techniques were indeed safe. The device positioned within the choroid was stable and a safe location. And it was possible to generate useful phosphines with participants being able to navigate an obstacle course and locate objects on a table in a controlled environment. However, there were a few limitations and they were, because it was a prototype, participants couldn't take it home and could only use the device in the labs. And with only 20 stimulating electrodes, it only allowed um, a small field of view. So these results and uh, participant feedback led to design of our second generation device called the 44 channel fully implantable device. This implant has more electrodes 44 to be exact, as the name says, and it enables a wider view and the device is portable. So the slide I have up now, it does have an image of the 24-channel and 44-channel preclinical bionic eye, and I just have it there to demonstrate that there are more electrodes on the 44-channel device, but the size is still similar. So researchers were able, were able to double electrodes without increasing the size of the implant. And the hope of our bionic eye is that we will use it in conjunction with participants' current aids and guides, like long canes and guide dogs, um, to assist them further with navigation, for example, um, identifying overhanging trees, thin poles or doorways, and just allowing them to be a little bit more independent in their normal day-to-day -day lives. So this trial has been registered um, on the clinicaltrials.gov um, website if you want to look it up, and we are currently recruiting by invitation only. Now, with all this talk about bionic eyes, you might be wondering if there's anything being done in the field of macular degeneration. So currently our team is not looking into bionic eyes for AMD. However, there is um, work being done by other groups um, around the world. Uh, one group in Manchester is currently running a trial and there's a French research group called Pixian Vision who were given approval last year to begin an, a an AMD study with their implant called the Premier Implant. Um, so AMD implants are smaller than uh, retinitis pigmentosa bionic eye implants and the Pixian Vision one is 2 by 2 millimetres in size and there's this size difference because it's believed less retinal stimulation is needed in macular, macular degeneration patients but the issue we have I suppose is that they're implanting into a retina that is still very much functioning and which is the reason why our research group hasn't gone into that field. 
So to conclude, uh, Bionicai research is developing and we are making progress. However, uh, we do have a long way to go before we get any real breakthrough that gives people vision um, better than they already have and allows them to get rid of their visual aids. So we do hope our research will eventually provide patients with an alternative to treatment in the future if we haven't cured RP or AMD by the time Bionic Eyes can reliably restore useful video. Uh, sorry, useful vision. <laughs> Thank you. I guess uh, one thing with the Australian device, the one that we are developing is um, it is the one that is in the safest part of your retina. You don't have most other groups have to actually go into the eye and impinge that electrode onto the retina. And you can imagine that there are many more complications and particularly in people with AMD that have a very good retina apart from the very middle, uh, it does seem a little uh, at this point adventurous. Whereas at least our device is put very um, smoothly and easily in a little pocket behind the eye and doesn't you don't have to go into the eye. So potentially down the track, ours would be a much more user-friendly, easier to implant and many less side effects. So of any that you might want to put in someone with some residual vision, it would be the one that's designed like ours. And the reason why we had to do the first study was it was really we really had no idea whether it would work because it's quite some distance from the cells that you need to stimulate. So that's why it was important to have that first study. So that's very exciting. Um, and now we will hear from Twee. Twee Chow works in the clinical trials unit and I've borrowed him because he has done a lot of work in the AMD trials, which we do together. So um, he will tell us primarily concentrating on, on dry AMD. Uh, and the way I like to think of it is dry is the new wet. It's the place to be because wet has been enormously advanced in the past 10 years in the ability to treat the bleeding. But to date, we have not got a, a treatment that will slow the progression. And may I just uh, correct Michael, he said it's um, macular generation uh, week. We've actually been elevated to a month. So it's May is the macular month, which is um, in some recognition of how important not only uh, age-related macular generation is, but we've got to remember diabetes also has great impact on, on the macula. So that's why we now have a month um, to uh, highlight our disease. Hi, my name's Twee. I'm, I'm an orthoptist and study coordinator in the Clinical Trials Research Centre here um, at Serum. Uh, and my talk will be on geographic atrophy um, in the clinical trial environment. So as many of you know, AMD is a progressive eye disease uh, that has become uh, the Western world's leading cause of irreversible blindness in people aged 50 years and older. And there are two forms of AMD. So the dry form, in which there's white or yellowish uh, small deposits known as drusen that can deteriorate and degenerate over time. The other form is the wet, uh, which is defined by the formation of new blood vessels at the macula. Uh, so AMD has ver variable rates of progression. Uh, these are usually classified by three different stages, uh, early, intermediate and advanced, where geographic atrophy or GA is known as the advanced form of dry AMD. So currently GA is defined uh, by photography of the back of the eye um, and is characterized by the development and gradual enlargement of one or more atrophic patches that involve the retinal pigment epithelium. So in simple terms, there are islands of dead retinal cells that gradually expand um, and can slowly join up in the middle part of your vision, uh, making it difficult to read, drive or recognize faces. 
the disease process of GA is still being understood, uh, still being studied, and according to the age-related eye disease studies, the most common sequence of events leading to GA is the progression of large drusen and retinal changes, ultimately leading to retinal cell death and development of the patchy areas or the holes in the retina uh, and the underlying layers. So usually GA first develops uh, near the fovea, which is the macular center, uh, and the fovea is responsible for sharp central vision, uh, requiring activities of, of high demand, like reading or driving. So in the early stages of the disease, the central part is spared, so patients with it with GA may have good central vision. So even though one might be able to read quite low on the vision charts when getting tested, uh, the person the person may not be able to see or read because it doesn't necessarily fit into that central spared island of vision. So the progression of GA will occur gradually over time, sparing the macular center until later in the course of the disease. And once progressed into the central part, vision can decline quite quickly. So eyes with larger areas of atrophy or those patchy areas tend to have a larger growth rate. Uh, so as the lesions gets bigger, the enlargement rate also increases. What we also know is that GA can affect uh, roughly 5 million people worldwide and its, uh, and its current increases exponentially with age. It's responsible for about 10 to 20% of cases uh, of blindness in AMD patients, which is less common than the wet form. GA is found to occur four times as frequently as opposed to wet AMD in patients aged above 85. And the causes of GA are not well understood. And scientific studies have shown there are specific genetic characteristics or environmental factors that, um, like smoking, heart disease, or obesity, can contribute uh, to the development and progression of GA. Um, so currently, there are no approved medical treatments and globally. And to address this, there are several research studies underway. Although the current trials are not specifically uh, investigating drugs to treat or cure GA, researchers are, finding, uh, are searching for a way to reduce the speed of the progression uh, via targeting different pathways in the body. So at CIRA, the Clinical Trials Research Centre and the Macular Research Unit have previously been involved in five pharmaceutical research studies, um, and these studies were led by Professor Robin Goma. And those five studies have only just recently completed, and we do have one starting uh, in the next month or so. So we're involved in some natural history studies uh, where there's no uh, treatment involved, uh, and this is aimed to advance our knowledge of the uh, condition, so in this case, GA. So these studies tend to focus on the development and progression uh, of GA, and the data on visual function decline has not been well investigated, uh, and this is what the, uh, the studies aim to address. So in these two studies here, the Proxima A and Proxima B, uh, patients came in every six months and had a variety of image tests, uh, image ass um, imaging assessments, vision tests, uh, questionnaires, and we took some blood samples as well. We were also uh, involved in some interventional trials, uh, which will involve some form of treatment and can look at current or new medicines or ways to administer that medication for a particular condition. So all of the trials are structured to be randomized or allocated at random involving the study medication or placebo, so meaning nothing at all. So this is important to ensure there's a good comparison between the option and a way to understand if the medication being tested actually works. So the Beacon trial is a bromododine uh, medication, which is commonly used in glaucoma patients as an eye drop. Uh, but in this study, uh, it was administered as a slow-releasing implant injected into the eye, uh, where, where it releases the medication over a three to four month period. So patients were receiving the medication every three months for about two years. So the medication looked at uh, protecting the neurons in the retina involved in the progression of GA to prevent cell death. Um, and this study only recently completed um, and the pharmaceutical company plans to further look at this mode of treatment and produce another study sometime in the future. 
Both the lampalizumab and the Philly studies um, looked at a different pathway uh, to delay the progression of GA using a molecule or a drug that targets a particular enzyme in the eye. These studies involved injections into the eye every four to eight weeks. So the lampalizumab studies uh, results weren't too positive, um, so the, uh, and the outcome was not what the sponsors had aimed for. So that study came to a close earlier this year. The Philly uh, study had quite positive results and showed a reduction in the rate of GA lesion growth, uh, GA lesion growth compared to the placebo treatment. So what it showed, it, it showed a 29% reduction in growth compared to the placebo arm if injected every four weeks and a 20% reduction if injected every eight weeks. So due to these great results, another study with the same drug will commence later this year to further investigate the effectiveness of the drug. The other study that we do have starting up uh, very soon is the uh, one by Ionis Pharmaceuticals. And similar to the last two studies, um, and it also targets the same enzymes, but found in the liver. So this will reduce the levels of the enzyme in the body, which will in turn help slow down that progression. So rather than injections into the eye, it's injected into the abdomen, so the stomach or the thighs, every two weeks uh, of the study drug or the real thing. So as part of clinical trials, there are several imaging uh, modalities we perform to determine size and location of the lesion. These are just some images of what GA can look like on various equipment. The most common method we use is autofluorescence imaging, and it's a great diagnostic indicator and a tool for measuring disease progression. So as you can see, any dark areas are the uh, dead retinal cells, and the surrounding white areas are indicating the unhealthy cells. Um, in clinical trials, the size and location are very important and may be a limiting factor whether one can participate or not. We use this tool of imaging uh, to measure exactly how much GA you have, and all these images get sent off to our grading centre for further analysis. So lesions that are too small or too big um, may stop you from coming into a trial. Um, so if you are interested in participating in a clinical trial or being included in our database of patients, you can register your details on our website or alternatively uh, and preferred is um, you can get your optometrist or eye specialist to write a letter of referral uh, straight to Professor Robin Gomer. So as mentioned, we do have a few clinical trials starting soon and we hope to have a few more starting in the next uh, year or so to further investigate a treatment for GA. Thanks, Tui. So you can see it's a very exciting time in geographic atrophy that there are things being done around the world of which we are able to offer to patients in Australia to be part of these world-first studies. So as uh, Tui finished with, um, we need to find these patients somewhere for these trials. And so what normally happens is we will collect them either from uh, our group of um, clinicians' rooms or we will send out a flyer to optometrists and ophthalmologists. But if you can be proactive and ask your own clinician clinicians, what do you have and could you send some pictures in, then you can quite clearly see that we, rather than drag you in and, and spend the day and work out you've not got what we need for a particular trial, we'll be able to do that like on the database. And so one of the aims going forward uh, is to grow a, a database or a registry so that we can very quickly find people that would be suitable because one of the things that costs a lot of money in trials is the time it takes to, to find people to put them in. So that's all very encouraging in terms of uh, what the outlook is in the, in the next few years uh, for the dry form of AMD. So I now would like to introduce Callum Narita. He is with us for a year. He's a Part of his medical training is that he gets to spend a year with us and we can coerce him into doing ophthalmology uh, if he's any good. We're still working that one out. 
at the moment. But he's going to tell us about uh, a very exciting new tool which actually starts to blur the lines between our current understanding of what is dry and what is wet. So uh, Callum, would you like to come and tell us what you do? So yeah, my name is Callum. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm here for a year working on um, a new way to see abnormal blood vessels in AMD. Obviously, we've just talked about the dry endpoint of AMD, so that's geographic atrophy. Uh, but I am talking to you about the wet uh, endpoint. So this is also known as the neovascular or new blood vessel form of the um, condition. So in this, the new blood vessels, I'm sure some of you understand this, but uh, new blood vessels grow into the retina. Um, and these can cause either bleeding or leaking of fluid. Uh, and so as you can, well, if you can see on the left-hand side, there is this sort of large bleed, um, and this can cause problems with your vision, um, either blurring or distortion of your vision. So this is unique in that it is the major treatable form of AMD. So you get injections, in, regular injections into your eye, um, and the medications shrink, either shrink the vessels and make them more stable and stop them from leaking and bleeding. So just to further on this treatment, so we now understand that the best, out, the best predictor of your outcome at the end of all your treatment um, is your vision at the start of treatment. So for people who have perfect vision at the start of it, when they are first diagnosed with new blood vessels at the back of the eye, um, they have better visual outcomes than people who start off with the worst vision or with like uh, severe visual impairment. So as you can see on the graph, um, people at the top with 6-6 or 20-20 vision uh, have much better visual outcomes after two years. And this is important because it means we want to detect people with the new blood vessels as early as possible. So the way we normally detect people with new blood vessels at the moment um, is using optical coherence tomography, or OCT. Um, this is the one that you, the scan you'll get in your ophthalmology clinics. Um, so this gives you a cross-sectional view of the eye. And what we can see is the fluid that is leaking from the uh, leaky blood vessels. So these appear as these uh, black areas um, in the retina. So the problem with OCT is that we can't actually see the blood vessels directly. All we can see is the fluid that's leaking out of them. So we can only really pick it up once they've started to cause problems. Now, one of the alternative ways of seeing um, blood vessels in the back of the eye is to use dye angiography. So this is when you inject dye into the arm and you take photos of the back of the eye uh, over a period of time and to see if there's any leakage of the dye, which could indicate there's new blood vessels. So this is really effective at seeing these, but unfortunately it does require injecting of dye into the arm. And we don't really like to give dye to everybody because there are potential consequences um, and risks that it can occur. So really we were interested in a way to see these blood vessels without uh, intervening. And so this is where my, oh, the area of interest that this new device gives is that it's a non-invasive way of viewing uh, the vessels at the back of the eye. Non-invasive meaning there's no need for any dye. It's just like a regular OCT, except it can see the blood uh, flow in the back of the eye. And so it does this by layering a whole lot of scans on top of each other and tracking the movement of red blood cells. And that can actually give you a view, like this on the screen, of the uh, major blood vessels, but all the layers of the retina. And so this is really important. As Kira was saying, there's layers that we're particularly interested at the back of the eye. And we can actually look at specific ones, and this is unique to OCT and geography. And the thing that we've discovered using this new imaging modality is that people have these new blood vessel networks before they cause symptoms. So they're actually sitting there, whether or not they're doing good or not, we're not sure, but they are sitting there without causing problems, and then they eventually will leak fluid or bleed and cause problems. So we can detect this in people who 
haven't had symptoms yet, but who have uh, intermediate or early stages of AMD. Oh, so one of the disadvantages with uh, OCT angiography, however, is it can't see leak directly. So it does need to work in conjunction with one of the other two methodologies. So I'll just elaborate a little bit about this normal detection process. So normally somebody will complain of symptoms first, so they'll complain of poor vision or distorted vision, which will prompt them to visit their um, their ophthalmologist um, who will do one of these OCT or dye angiographies. Then they decide to treat fluid. And there's this sort of delay in the middle where there's a time between your first onset of symptoms and the diagnosis and treatment. So this OCTA hopes to break the cycle by knowing who's at higher risk of developing problems in the future or wet AMD in the future so that when they do develop symptoms, we can jump in as early as possible to commence treatment, eliminate the delay. So in terms of its uses, so we are interested in two particular um, areas. So number one is clinical, and that's probably most interesting to you, um, you as an audience. So that's the ability to see these new vessels and to identify the high-risk patients. But in terms of research, there's a few areas which we're particularly interested in. So we really want to learn about the vascular changes associated with macular degeneration, um, either in its dry or wet form. So a few areas which we'll be looking into uh, in the near future. So we are looking for any changes that can predict either the dry or wet form, so neovascular AMD, so any changes before these new blood, uh, blood vessels occur. But especially with the dry AMD, um, we believe that there is a vascular cause of dry AMD. We also want to know if these new vessels that are sitting there that aren't causing any problems, are they okay to sit there? Are they being protective of the eye? Are they protecting against dry AMD? Um, and we also will want to use this for identifying patients for future clinical trials. Just a little bit about our OCTA that we have. So we have a novel, a new device um, that allows for even higher resolution and higher, faster scanning. Uh, and we are part of an international research collaboration. So that helps to gather a whole lot of information across the globe about the disease and hopefully rapidly develop our understanding of AMD. Thanks, Callum. So that's sort of where I said it sort of blurs a line between wet and dry. These are people that you would see that even potentially have early stage of the disease and you're not even suspecting that there are abnormal blood vessels there. But uh, there are some signs that Callum is looking for that might hint that they're there and you go and whip over and do one of these tests and lo and behold there's this huge frond of blood vessels that prior to doing the test you didn't know existed so in fact they're in the dry part of the disease or even the early part of the disease yet they are the blood vessels that cause the wet AMD. So it is potentially biologically feasible that they are there doing good things until they get out of control. So the whole reason those blood vessels grow into the retina is because the retina is sick. It's not getting what it needs. And so there's potentially years where that blood vessel is actually doing a good job. And you can imagine that if you can see these blood vessels, there's a bunch of ophthalmologists that want to treat it. And so already people are starting to treat these hitherto not causing any problem blood vessels and so one of the learn learnings will be do we actually bring about more dry AMD because we got rid of the very blood vessel that was keeping those cells alive. So we, it will change our understanding of, of this disease significantly, I think. So finally, we're on to um, uh, Dr. Zi Wu. So some of you will know Zi when he was our PhD student, and he really led the world, world in describing the very earliest signs of dry AMD, and that actually has uh, elevated us in the world in terms of our standing in contributing to how you would 
design trials and studies that looked very early in the disease, whereas as if you remember and still awake from Twee's talk, um, we had to wait till there were holes in, in the retina, those moth-eaten holes, before you could start. So it could potentially be that's too late. So a big part of the focus of my group is, is what do you measure early? And so he's come back from two years in America, uh, and now he's going to tell us about rather than using just vision on a chart that you read when you go to the eye doctor or the or optometrist, what else is there that he potentially would like to measure? So thanks, Z. Thanks, Robin. Good morning. It's great to see all of you. I see a few familiar faces um, from many years back who have uh, personally contributed to um, this work. There we go, and I'll just pull up my slides. Um, and as Robin mentioned, today I'll be um, giving you a bit of a sneak peek into some of the work that we've been doing to try and use our new vision tests to really help us um, to enable early intervention. So let's jump right into it. Great. Yes, so um, as Robin mentioned, one of the real interests or desire of our research group uh, is to try and enable early interventions uh, for AMD right at a stage before vision is lost because we just want to stop people from ever experiencing um, the, the symptoms of vision loss. But a real roadblock that we experience um, to this task uh, is the real lack of um, the right tools to help us discover and to deliver these early interventions. So to help us discover and deliver these interventions effectively, like Robin mentioned, we need more than just our standard clinical tests. We need more than just a, a examination of, of the eye or letters on a chart because that's that's what is needed to help us uh, with this task. And as Callum has shown you just then, uh, he, he's shown us how eye imaging can help us in this task. And I hope to show you the other facet of how visual function tests um, could help us as well. I'll try and do this with two examples. Um, but as Tui mentioned, that the now clinical trials that are involved are trying to stop the, the atrophic or this dry um, progression where you've got atrophic meaning patches of cells that are missing or degenerated um, to stop the atrophy from spreading. Um, so these trials often uh, try and monitor the progression, as we showed you before, of pictures where these patches are getting bigger. But the real desire of ours is to try and see if we can even stop these patches of cells from ever developing, uh, which makes us, uh, which made us ask the question: What really happens um, before this patch of cells? Uh, patch of atrophy developed. So looking back at people, so I've got a picture over here that shows you if you turn back the clock and go back in time, we tried to understand the earliest features on eye imaging. And indeed, when we use the scans, the type of scans that Callum talked about, we noticed that there were features that were characteristic um, of these earliest signs that indicate that the atrophy is going to develop in a year or two's time. And that, those features are fantastic because we really want to target them for new interventions before that patch um, of atrophy develops. So, um, so in fact, new clinical trials could try and stop these patches from developing into that patch of atrophy over there. But what else can we do to try and uh, measure whether these areas, uh, whether we're doing a good job with stopping the progression of these? And in comes 
visual function tests. Uh, and this technique that we've been uh, working on recently is called microperimetry. Uh, it's a, a, a test to try and measure light sensitivity at very fine locations. The, the picture that you see up there sort of measures light sensitivity over about a three millimeter region of the eye. And each of these spots are maybe about the thickness of your hair, if you've got thick black hair like me. And uh, you, it might be a bit hard to see, but as we measure the light sensitivity, we get values of how well someone can detect light throughout the, the macular region. And green over there just means relatively normal, and red means that it's decreased. And these abnormalities that we detect uh, are often, can, they can be present before someone even notices um, the vision changed at all. So this is why we really have a powerful tool through this microperimetry technique to help us monitor the changes in these on these areas of atrophy. Um, so we've been, in particular, taking, trying to refine this even further because sometimes, even with our conventional method with microperimetry, the little uh, spots where atrophy first develops can be quite small, which means that they can fall in between the two spots that we're testing. So we've taken a targeted approach where you take all the areas that you want to test and hone in on the area of atrophy so that we can monitor accurately and precisely over time. Uh, so here's another example where the patch of atrophy falls in between and in, in with a targeted testing-based approach. So hopefully that gives you a glimpse of how um, this new vision function test can help us in this task to aid new interventions in their development. Now let's try and move, let's move on to uh, the other wet or the neovascular complication. Neo meaning new vascular or vessels or new vessels, um, as Callum explained, could could leak and uh, result in blood and reduce vision inside the eyes. So this complication, uh, as Callum mentioned, uh, that there is currently a treatment for it, and as he explained to the best outcomes for the long term are achieved when you start the interventions as early as you can. But often in order to detect these complications and the development, which tends to be quite acute, out of the blue and sudden, your optometrist or your ophthalmologist might give you this little chart uh, called an Amsler grid. It's basically uh, a square with straight lines. And he, he might ask, he or she might ask you to put it on your fridge and to check it one eye at a time on every Sunday to try and monitor if visual changes have occurred. But We've learned more recently that even with this chart, that, the, that these earliest signs uh, indicating the development of these new blood vessels uh, that can occur, that, that does not manifest itself. When you look at the chart, you, you will not have any vision loss or no symptoms, yet these earliest signs of new vessel growth can be present, which made us realize, well, there's this unique window of opportunity where we could try and come up with a test that could detect these new vessels so that we can get you in to get the interventions as early as possible. Um, oh, and these are sort of uh, some scans that show us these earlier signs that have occurred, but not yet associated with visual changes. So 
we wonder what is something that we can develop and get people to do regularly so we can pick it up as early as we can. And in comes iPhones, iPads, and all this new technology. Um, smartphones, tablet devices have become ubiquitous in our generation and in our society. Lots of people have access to them. And the, the great little things, the like little computers that can that can deliver vi vision tests that are that can be quite precise and accurate. I've been, we've been interested in trying to find the best sort of vision tests uh, that we can provide people on these platforms so that you can do them at home to detect these earliest signs. And one of the tests that we've, we're looking into at the moment is based on this very interesting phenomena. So if you've got the earliest signs um, of the of the, these new leaky vessels in the back of your eyes. And if you stare right at a straight line, that straight line, uh, if presented very briefly, will appear somewhat distorted. Now, if you move on to present a, a line, a, a dotted line that increasingly gets spaced further and further apart, that, that level of distortion disappears. And this, this is a powerful way that can help us try and quantify or identify um, the level of distortion, which can provide us with an accurate way of picking up these earlier signs of these leaky blood vessels. So that's something that we're hoping we're currently implementing and testing out on an iPad to, and compare it with other tests that we've developed to try and see how well it works. So hopefully that gives you another glimpse of how a vision test can help us uh, find people with these earliest signs to bring them in so that early interventions can be delivered. And that's it, thank you. We'll have all our speakers come to the front uh, in case there's some questions for them. So we'll open it up to everyone. If uh, I can direct the questions to whoever you would like to ask one of. We did have a, a discussion before we started about this uh, news report that very recently there had been stem cells given to someone with AMD, the dry form, over in, in London, and that there was a report that from going from unable to be able to see, they could now read almost normally and it was two patients and to my mind I, I cannot even work out how that's possible because the cells that were being transplanted were the the little cells that support the cells that need to see they didn't transplant the cells the photoreceptors so uh, I am at a loss to explain that uh, result so I would just await further proper studies to see whether or not it's possible to regain vision. The aim of, X of the stem cells is to try and again slow down the progression by producing, giving cells that might be fitter, not, not so sick. So it is beyond me to understand how it Im improved actual visual acuity. But um, I think it's important that the work is continuing and that uh, it is possible to replace cells that are dying uh, into the eye and they live and they go to the right spot. So it's a step one, but I wouldn't uh, all be buying the ticket over to London just yet. Thank you, Robert. One of the panel mentioned the treatment for one of the aspects by injecting in other parts of the body. Um, I just wondered if you would mind to, if you could elaborate on that. 
Sure. Uh, question for those who didn't hear was most of the treatments are into the eye and um, Tree mentioned that one of the studies we're about to start, in fact, is a treatment not into the eye, but is actually given as an injection under the skin. Yeah. Um, so basically that study, uh, study is starting uh, and commencing probably soon in the next month or so. And rather than injecting into the eye, they're looking at different modes of treatment. Um, obviously people hate injections, uh, so they're looking at a different mode. Uh, same enzyme that they're targeting, uh, so it's found in the liver. Um, and it's just injected every two months, I believe, for two years, um, every two weeks. So the eye, is, eye disease is um, a fabulous opportunity to treat locally. So up until now, the idea had, has been that if you can treat just to the eye, you will avoid what's called systemic side effects. But there are some risks associated with sticking a needle in an eye, and you certainly can't do that yourself. Whereas the idea of this one is that it may be something that you could do at home or a nurse could visit the home and do it. So it's still, as Twee says, it's still aiming to block a molecule similar to the molecule that you block when you give an injection in the eye. Uh, and when and we have been involved in trials where it's been a tablet and trials where it's been a drop and this one just happens to be needed to be given as a subcutaneous injection. But along with that are potential risks associated with blocking a molecule that's involved in treating infection and inflammation. So this trial is quite a, a, a difficult one to, to run because you have to make sure everyone is uh, vaccinated for the flu and for meningitis because there is the potential that if you block the the inflammation in the eye, you might block the potential to fight infection. So entirely new list of concerns. Yeah. Um, my understanding, it wasn't mentioned today, but my understanding of the first indication of trouble in your eye is first, first uh, mm -hmm. Correct. you know, when Mm -hmm. Correct. That was the first mm -hmm. indication that something wrong in a mm -hmm. in Correct. Mm -hmm. And that bruising wasn't mentioned today. So these, these mm -hmm. things are prior to bruising. Correct. So, so if it, was the, the first indication. Correct. So if you remember my little classification, we have early disease and late disease. And uh, late disease is this wet and dry. And that the difference is whether you've got a vision-threatening problem in your eye or you have a risk factor in your eye. So again, if you think of it like blood pressure and stroke, the drusen are like finding the blood pressure. You haven't had the stroke yet, but because you've got high blood pressure, you're more at risk. So the one in seven people over 50 will have drusen and only one in seven of those will develop a vision threatening late complication. So most of the work in current trials is dealing with the end, point, end stage. But what we want to do, which is what some of the talks were about, is how do you get there before that happens? And the problem with that is, well, what are you going to measure? Because vision is fine. There are no symptoms. The traditional tests of knowing whether something worked is saving vision. But unfortunately, the vision that you read on the chart in early disease, well, fortunately, is still perfect. So you can't measure it and show that a treatment worked, which is why we exist actually, because that's where we lead the world in understanding what other things you might be able to measure.
but unfortunately you have to bring all the regulatory authorities with you uh, to believe that just because you change something in your eye means that people at the end of the day with this very expensive treatment are actually going to function better because all they want to know is that at the end of millions of dollars of treatment you actually have a, a better quality and function in your life and if we start early that is actually very hard to prove so that's therein lies the problem with all these chronic aging diseases is that you have to find a same same with alzheimer's disease you don't want to wait till there's memory loss you want to get in early but then what are you going to measure if you can't measure memory loss so they are they are the challenges but you're absolutely correct drusen is what the optometrist will see that will start that conversation about you being at an increased risk of the late forms of the disease Last year we heard about a phone app that um, would hopefully um, be a means of um, monitoring instead of using the grid. Is there any further development on that? So we are not developing a phone app. So you may have been at something where some of our colleagues are, but we are developing, as like um, Z said, so that we, it's exactly, it's a tablet device. So a phone is too small for what we want to do. So we are currently looking at the tests where uh, Z showed the little green and red dots where you look at how well the retina can see light is currently in trial uh, with our patients as a better way to monitor than the AMSA grid. And there's some people probably in the room that are still doing that. But um, since Z has come back, he's come up with some other ideas. Rather than measure how well the retinal cells can see light, he wants to look at slight distortion in a line. So they're all part of the same project of how you deliver something in the home to measure. But the problem with all of those things and we're not alone in developing those is how are we going to keep you engaged for the next 10 20 30 years because we know that even with the things you wear on your wrist that tell you to walk a hundred a thousand steps or ten thousand steps is that we don't we do it for three months and then stop so the thing that's different about our approach hopefully than than the rest of the world is we want to make it an engaging and so what we would have talked about last year is is working with game makers to try and put some subtle differences in ours versus the rest in, in how to keep you wanting to engage in this test for a very long time. No, Three months is not long enough. It could be 10, 20 years we're asking you to look at something. So how do we keep you doing that? And we've had really quite very spectacular success in getting the people in our trials to do this home-based test um, for you know up to a year. So that's all, all very encouraging. Robin, I wanted to ask you about a new drug that is out but uh, is not available to us just yet because the government is still negotiating a price with Novartis, the drug company. It starts with B. It's quite a long name. Um, my question is, is this new drug, I don't know if you've been involved in it, but is it likely to have a longer lasting power than Lucentis or Ilea? So that's its claim, and that's what was shown in trials. So it is just another form of blocking the signal that makes the blood vessels grow. And it is thought that if you could get some drug that lasted longer, you would have less injections. But already from Lucentis and Ilea, where in the trials it was given every four weeks, we already can treat some people every 12, 14, 16 weeks. 
So the real question is, could this longer-acting drug give you more than, than that? And as you may be aware, we individualise the treatment. Some people are four-week people and some people are 16-week people. So whether or not a different drug changes that dramatically, we'll have to see. But in the trials, it certainly showed that it could last a little longer. But in the back of everyone's mind, again, is do we really want that? Because maybe these blood vessels and that signal actually do some good as well as some harm. So it may well be not the answer that you want a forever blocking a, a drug that is, a, sorry, a signal, a molecule that actually is required for health of cells. So at the back of all this is whether if you treat too much the wet, you end up getting the dry. And so it may not be as simple as just wanting a drug that lasts for forever. So it'd be interesting to see. Okay. Can I ask another question, please? Sure. This is um, totally uh, to the left of the field, I don't know, but I do want to ask you, has there been any discussion at all about a macular transplant? So there have been, uh, and someone asked earlier, um, so we used, there used to be studies where you would take a bit of the retina out here and you'd do a pleat like in dressmaking and you would put it in the middle. There's two problems with that. One is that the macula is the only part of the retina that's designed for fine vision. So even if you could do that, the vision, the bit of retina out here is not wired. It's like the country Telstra service rather than the city Telstra service. It doesn't, even if you got it in there, it doesn't have enough connections to see as well as your, your macula. But you could argue it would be better than nothing. But the complications involved in taking the retina off and swinging it around and putting a pleat in it were so bad that all those trials never went anywhere. And so you've got to remember that in macular generation, your the vast majority of your retina is perfect. If now with these wide field uh, retinal cameras, you can see way out here and the whole retina is perfect except for this middle bit. So you don't want really to engage in a procedure that risks all that rest of that vision. So that so no one's thinking to take a bit of this tissue and put it here like a skin transplant. You would have to connect up all the neurons. You'd have to do the whole, you know, telephone connect, you know, the wires back again. And so that's not the approach. The approach is really to give back the layers of cells that are at fault. Because in AMD, the, the top eight layers are perfect. It's the bottom two that are at uh, risk. And so that's where you hear about these stem cells. But there's two layers of cells that are missing, one of the photoreceptors and one of the supporting cells. And you can't give back photoreceptors because, again, it's like how do you connect them all up to the to the telephone exchange? So they're working on the supporting cells, which is thought to be the key cell that's um, deteriorating in this disease. So that most work is on how you keep that alive for longer. So it, the, that's why the bionic eye is, is interesting because it really is one of the very few things that can give back vision that's lost. Most of us are trying to stop you losing it in the first place. So we don't really have too many good ideas of how you get the vision back and the bionic eye is literally one of, one of the few that I can think of. But we're only at the moment of giving back little spots of light and in AMD, your vision is so much better than that. At this stage, it is hard to imagine getting very soon to a point where the vision that can be offered from a bionic device is better than what you're still currently left with, even at the end of a macular degeneration, you know, the, the end stage of the disease. 
So I think on that we'll finish because we're over our time. And thank you very much for coming and we'll see you in Macular Month next year. Hello there. On behalf of Sarah, we'd just like to thank Robin and the team for the interesting morning. Um, I hope you've all enjoyed it. If we can help with anything further, I'm Elaine, the fundraising coordinator, or Maggie, our external relations coordinator. We've, we're here. We'll be very happy to help you with anything. But please join me in thanking Robin and the team again. Thank you.